0: So originally, Jinha was supposed to preach today. Um, unfortunately, she had an eye infection, and uh, over the past maybe, well, aside from last weekend, the previous three weeks, she hadn't had a day off, and I think her body was just saying, enough, like, I want a break. So last night, I just I sat down with her, and I was like, you like just i'll step in you take a break because your body is not functioning properly and so um i'm sorry this has kind of turned into the roy show um hopefully it's more the jesus show and um, <laughs> that that's more important but i'm sorry that i'm up front so much um so today um i thought i would just talk about how to develop genuine faith how to develop genuine faith um That slide should have been edited, but the sermon topic for today is not dealing with doubt, but how to develop genuine faith. And I want to start today's talk by introducing two individuals. The first individual is an Adventist or a former Adventist pastor in the U.S., and his name is Ryan Bell. And in 2014, um, Pastor Bell, or the former Pastor Bell, had a famous year-long experiment without God, one year without God. And he was going to, during this time, he was going through this difficult period where um, he had experienced a divorce, and um, he kind of had this crisis of faith, and he was deconstructing his beliefs as an Adventist pastor. And so he ended up losing his job um, as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, and um, yeah, he just announced on his blog that he was going to be an atheist for 12 months. Uh, Different news agencies picked up the story and interviewed him, and they followed him over this 12-month period, and to this day, Ryan Bell is still on a journey. And while he doesn't claim to be a staunch atheist, uh, he doesn't subscribe to Christianity either. The second individual that I want to share with you um, or talk about is Nathan Brown, and he happens to be the editor for Signs, which is a religious publishing company. Nathan also happens to be good friends with Ryan Bell. And in 2014, he reached out and started this dialogue about faith over the course of that year. And part of that dialogue became a book that Nathan wrote entitled, Why I Try to Believe. It's a book that takes an honest look at the challenges of faith and embraces those challenges rather than glossing over difficulty with general statements of faith. So something that I find really significant about this book is that Nathan's Brown, uh, excuse me the foreword of Nathan Brown's book it's written by Ryan Bell. And I just wanted to share if anything in this talk resonates with you or if there are any questions that you have or anything that you're inspired by, I highly recommend that you read this book. Why I try to believe. There's a copy of this book in the church library, and I've actually brought three extra copies of the book. And so there are four copies within the group. Hopefully there's enough. If there aren't any of those books left over, just tap me on the shoulder and I'll make sure and get a copy for you. So today's topic, how to develop genuine faith. Now, the first step to building genuine faith is to doubt or to learn how to doubt. And I think in different faith environments, whether it's church or small group or different religious gatherings, um, it's easy to have stock standard uh, answers for every question of faith. And so it's almost like this uncomfortable thing to raise questions of doubt. Like, hey, I'm not sure if I believe in this God thing or I'm not sure if I believe in the Bible. And, And it's almost socially, culturally unacceptable to ask questions. And Nathan Brown, he points out that faith and doubt are connected, and in order to build faith, one must explore and embrace doubt. Now, I don't know if you've ever valued doubt, but doubting has value. Rabbi Lawrence Kushner said, if you're not doubting the existence of God every two weeks, you are theologically comatose. Now, doubting at its best, it offers important critiques of faith, and If what you believe is never challenged, how then do you know that it's right and true? So genuine and authentic faith then must be interrogated. Now many of you know that I uh, go to a table tennis club next to my house, and I play. um, Friday mornings there's this group of people, they're called the teenagers, and uh, they play doubles. And this group is supposed to be made up of people who are 50 and above, and that's why they're teenagers. don't make the cut yet. I'm not far off. I don't quite make the cut, but they let me join them anyway. And one time, um, I was having a chat with this lady, and she asked me, what kind of work do you do? And so then I shared with her my occupation, and she then asked me right after she found out that I'm a pastor, and she kind of squinted her eyes, and she wanted to see how genuine I would be. And she asked me, have you ever read or listened to what the other side says? Are you sure that you're right, is what she was really asking. And I told her, yes, my faith gets tested all the time. And I bring this up because for her, she was saying, unless you've considered the opposition, how can your faith be genuine and robust? Ellen White, one of the pioneers of the Adventist church, Man, the text is really small. But for those of you, like, you can kind of squint, I'm going to read the the quote in its entirety because this is one of the most valuable quotations from one of the pioneers of the Adventist Church that, that I find. Like, I really appreciate this text. So I'm going to read it to you. She writes, There is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all our expositions of scripture are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. We are living in perilous times, and it does not become us to accept everything claimed to be truth without examining it thoroughly. Neither can we afford to reject anything that bears the fruits of the Spirit of God, but we should be teachable, meek, and lowly of heart. There are those who oppose everything that is not in accordance with their own ideas, and by so doing they endanger their eternal interests." Now, what I find profound is this lady was saying this in the 1800s, and I don't know what your idea of traditional faith looks like, but you would think that a leader of the church would say, I just want you all to believe the same thing. Just trust me, okay, and obey. But here she's saying, question things that are grounded and accepted as fundamental truths. Just because something has been accepted as truth in the past, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't examine it for yourself in the present. She's saying, don't reject other ideas because it's not consistent with what you already believe. And the last sentence really hits home for me because she's saying, don't be closed-minded because it can endanger your eternal interests. That's a really heavy, heavy statement. I love that line in the middle of the text where it says, truth can afford to be fair. Our faith, our beliefs should be robust, and that strength comes from testing, which then becomes rooted and grounded. So not only is doubting valuable, but it's necessary. It's impossible to nail faith because faith is inherently incomplete. See, our believing is never finished because we are limited by our experience, we're limited by our knowledge and our understanding. So then, humility should shape our believing. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 9, 10, and 12, Paul writes, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. For now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. And Paul here is talking about the second coming of Christ. Until God appears and says, here's the truth in its entirety, we, our faith, is incomplete. Hebrews 11, verse 3 starts by saying, by faith we understand. Or in other words, our understanding, it requires faith. If we have unbeatable arguments, absolute proof, and a full understanding, we're no longer talking about faith. We're talking about fact. See, faith is when we're given too much evidence to ignore, but not enough evidence to be certain. So then faith, it requires us to be humble And humility should shape our faith. Faith requires us to say we cannot explain everything. But we're then invited to try, to experiment, to explore, to doubt, and to struggle. So then the next step to developing genuine faith is to try to believe. In other words, effort matters. In the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the author and the finisher of our faith. And notice how he approaches someone who struggles with his faith. In Mark chapter nine, verses twenty to twenty-four, there's this man who um, has this son who is possessed by an evil spirit, and he brings this um, son who is possessed to Jesus for healing. And I don't know if demon possession sounds fictitious to you, but there's this man by the name of Doctor Richard Gallagher, and I've just I've screenshotted. The, the top of the heading from the Washington Post, and if you're interested, you can look up the Washington Post. There's also an article in CNN um, about Dr., Dr. Gallagher. But he's an Ivy League-educated, board-certified psychiatrist who teaches at Columbia University and New York Medical College. And he started his training skeptical of possession, and he assumed uh, possession is just related to some, like, mental health problems. He is now a consultant that gets flown around the U.S. to help with exorcisms. And once again, you can find his article on Washington Post and CNN. Now, there's an interview with Dr. Gallagher, and basically he states, I'm a man of science and a lover of history. After studying the classics at Princeton, I trained in psychiatry at Yale and in psychoanalysis at Columbia, and that background is why a Catholic priest had asked my professional opinion, which I offered pro bono. Um, about whether this woman was suffering from a mental disorder. This was at the height of the national panic about Satanism, and I was inclined to skepticism, but my subject's behavior exceeded what I could explain, about, uh, explain with my training. She could tell some people their secret weaknesses, such as undue pride. She knew how individuals she had never known had died, including my mother in her fatal case of ovarian cancer. Six people later vouched to me that during her exorcisms, they heard her speaking multiple languages, including Latin, completely unfamiliar to her outside of her trances. This was not psychosis. It was what I can only describe as paranormal ability. I concluded that she was possessed. Now, Dr. Richard Gallagher says in most cases, he spends time with his patients or his clients and he's trying to convince them, you are not possessed. But he says very rarely there is significant paranormal activity. And he says, this is real. Now, I personally think that if possession were this normal occurrence, more people would probably believe in God. Because it's like if everybody's getting possessed, and it's like if there is supernatural activity on one end, certainly there should be on the other end. Well, in Mark chapter 9, we have this story of possession. And here's the text. Uh, verses 20 to 24, and I'm just going to narrate the story as you read the text, otherwise it's a bit redundant. So the possessed boy is brought to Jesus, and the Spirit throws this boy uh, to the ground, and before Jesus helps, he turns to the boy's dad, and he, and he says in verse 23, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, immediately, the father of the child cries out, and he says with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I feel like this is really significant because Jesus requires absolute faith for healing. He says, for those who can believe, all things are possible. But when the man expresses his doubt, he says, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus Heals the boys or the man's son anyway. And, and for me, the significant thing is that Jesus values the trying. He values the effort. And God values your trying because he gets that it's not easy to believe. See, encountering God, it's not about the amount of faith that you possess, but it's where you focus the little amount of faith that you do possess. There's so many moments when I'm uncertain about what will happen in my day. I'm thinking about the different conversations that I have to have, different meetings. There might be a project that I need help with, and there's so many times where I feel uncertainty, so then it draws me to this place of prayer. Now, if I'm honest, most of the time, I'm not thinking God has this, and I'm not cool as a cucumber. You can ask my family, what's Roy like in times of stress? I'm not like... Shalom, everybody. <laughs> that's, that's just not me. I'm, I'm, I tend to freak out a bit. I'm often stressed, and I can't tell you how many times I've prayed about those instances, and I've watched God work. And the reality is that I'm still stressed, but it causes me to pray more, and I can watch God do something. And, and my point is that God takes the trying So we're talking about how to develop genuine faith. We've talked about learning how to doubt. We've talked about letting humility shape our believing. We've talked about try to believe. The fourth fourth step or the fourth point of developing genuine faith is to shape your faith in the context of a community. If faith requires humility, then we cannot build faith alone. We then need each other to build faith. So the theologian Fritz Guy, he says, It would be arrogant to disregard completely the thinking of others, supposing that we have nothing to learn from anyone else, past or present. Given the immensity of the challenge and the meagerness of our own intellectual resources, we need all the help we can get, wherever we can find it. Faith always happens in a context, and we don't come to belief from nowhere And that's why church matters. That's why interacting with each other matters. And that's why the discussion time is so important because we get to learn from each other and discuss from our own experiences. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, Paul writes, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. There's something so significant about congregating together in a faith environment. Not so much about faking it till you make it, but there's something about just building off of the faith and encouragement of others. And that's why church is so important. Faith is developed in the context of a community. The fifth point that I want to make about developing genuine faith is to prioritize the undeniable over the unexplainable. There are very good reasons why people doubt the Bible, God, Jesus, and Christianity. It might be the existence of suffering. It might be be building trust in the Bible as a credible text. It might be the apparent inconsistency of science and scripture It could be the disappointment that comes from people inside of the church, or it could be God not acting in a way that we expected him to act. The list goes on, and I just want to say there are good reasons why people don't believe. So how does one develop faith in the face of these reasonable challenges? There are two things that people encounter while exploring God. The first one is that which is unexplainable. Questions, doubts, concerns, everybody goes through this. The second thing that we encounter when pursuing God is that which is undeniable. The undeniable is your personal experience, your experience with truth as you read through Scripture and you follow out the teachings of Jesus and you find this is adding life and light into my life. I I feel wisdom, I feel peace, I feel freedom. There are other personal experiences divine providence when God acts in a way where we're, where, where, where we cannot explain what has just happened. It could be a miracle, an answer to prayer. And my point is that there are ways to cultivate faith so that we can prioritize the undeniable in the midst of that which is unexplainable. There's a story in John chapter 1 where Nathaniel is looking for the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's confronted by doubt. And I just want to look at this interaction with Jesus. And once again, I'm just going to narrate as you read through the text. In verse 45, Philip comes to Nathaniel, and he says, "Nathaniel, I found the Messiah. And that statement, I found the Messiah, is very significant. Because that title is like... It's like if somebody were looking for a superhero to come and fix all the problems of the land... And in Jewish theology, there's this prophecy that an individual would come and fix everything and right all of the wrongs, and Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, I found him. He's from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, it's often referred to in the negative, and I'm not sure why, but it just had a bad reputation. And I was tempted to think of like a suburb and go, Nazareth is like, and then I was like, no, that's not a good idea. (laughs) But the place of Jesus' town of origin, it brings reason for doubt. And Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Philip could have responded to Nathaniel in a couple of ways. He could have answered his objections, right? Hey, the taxes are lower in Nazareth than all of Galilee. Nobody fries better fish than in Nazareth. And the list could go on. And the reality is that conversation, it probably wouldn't have convinced Nathaniel. When we are exposed to the Bible, we will face that which is unexplainable about God. There are questions that are just subjective in nature and difficult, if not impossible, to satisfy with an answer. But if you look at verse 46, notice how Philip responds to Nathanael's objection. Nathanael's concerned about Nazareth as, his place, as, as a town that's kind of like a dump, and he's wondering, how can the Savior of Israel come from a place like Nazareth? And Philip's response is, come and see. Meet Jesus for yourself. If you look at verse 47, I love what Jesus says to Nathaniel. And in the New Living Translation, you can read it in the NIV, but in verse 47 in the New Living Translation, it says, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity, and Jesus here affirms Nathanael's intellectual honesty. He appreciates that Nathaniel is not going to pretend or fake his faith. And my point is that the Son of God approves of the genuine questioning of Nathanael. And in verse 48, Nathanael asks, How do you know me? I haven't even introduced myself to you. And when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree when Philip found you, Nathaniel comes in contact with the undeniable. So he cannot help but respond by saying, "You are the son of God." Notice Nathaniel, he doesn't bring up Nazareth. We don't know if his concerns about Nazareth were ever answered. Nazareth was still a crummy town. It just didn't bother him as much. See Nathaniel became a follower of Jesus with his question. Because in that moment he had a personal encounter with Christ. If you think about the major decisions that you have to make in your life, there are always questions and concerns attached to those decisions. A relationship, how do I know if this person is right for me? How do I know if this person is going to treat me well 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road? How do I know if there isn't how do I know if there isn't going to be someone who's better? Like what happens If I get to the wedding reception and lock eyes with the waitress or the waiter and realize, oh, you're the one I was supposed to spend the rest of my life with. (laughs) What about a career choice? Did you know if you were going to have a successful career or even enjoy your work? Did you know that your job would bring long-lasting meaning and purpose? What about buying a house? How do you know if the market is going to hold up? How do you know if you're going to be able to afford your, your mortgage long term? What effect will locking up your savings have on your life? And I bring up these a- examples to show we can and often do move forward in the face of uncertainty. And in many decisions, even when the answers, even when the questions don't have answers, we're able to make a decision. I think of having children. For those of you who don't have kids and are contemplating a family, as much as you love certainty and control, Those things do not exist. (laughs) As soon as you have kids, you will realize, I do not have control. I do not have certainty. And my point is, in many cases, the unexplainable objections we face in our daily lives are not answered before we're able to move forward. We don't know what the housing market is going to do. We don't have 100% certainty that our career is going to provide satisfaction. We're not certain about our relationships long term. And the point is, we cannot separate uncertainty and doubt from decisions that we have to make. And yet, there are moments where we have enough evidence to move forward. There are so many times in my own life where I've read scripture and said, God, this is your will, this is your word, this is what you're calling me to explore and experiment with. And as I've stepped forward and said, God, I want to respond to you. I will submit to you. I will surrender this part of my life to you. There have been countless times where God enters into that space, and I can say, oh, this is what you meant. This is what you meant. So it's my prayer that as you wrestle with the unexplainable, that you may encounter the undeniable. So just to review one more time, how to develop genuine faith. Learn how to doubt. Let humility shape your believing. Try to believe. Explore. Experiment. Shape your faith in the context of a community and prioritize the undeniable over the unexplainable. May God bless you as you consider his word. We're going to close today by singing oceans. And if you would... Stand with me as we close. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we just thank you for your word. And Father, though this journey is not an easy one and it requires faith, it requires a belief, um, we understand that faith is the substance of things hoped for but the evidence of things unseen. And Father, you give us enough To trust and to step forward, and oftentimes your love, your power becomes evident um, after we surrender. And I just pray that you would draw us closer to you. And as we navigate this uncertain world, we just thank you that you provide a certain guide for us. And so, Father, I pray for those that are on that journey of faith in this room, for those that are watching. I pray that you would, your spirit would guide, that you would fulfill your promise, that your spirit would convict, that you would testify of Jesus, that you would lead us, guide us, and teach us. May we experience life, love, and freedom. We pray these things in your name. Amen.